Standby like use 2 through 33, sound 1A through 7 on deck. Standby Q actors. Electrics, kill the blue run lights, please. Like you 2 and sound 1A, go. From Arizona Theatre Company, this is Hang in Focus with your host, John Daniels. Uh, as someone that grew up in Arizona, it's a great way for us to share the work that we do worldwide. And featuring co-host Janelle Bragg. That is our responsibility, is to reflect what is going on in the world. Streaming live from the State Theatre of Arizona. So let's do it. Let's really use this moment to re-envision our Welcome to Hang in Focus, live with Sean Daniels. This is the new Arizona Theatre Company. I'm just glad that you're here. This week, Sean sits down with Christina Hamm, author of Nina Simone, for with. This interview was recorded on Friday, February 19th. This is Hang and Focus. Let's get started. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Hang and Focus. I'm your host, Sean Daniels. Thank you all so much for joining us. And I am always here with the amazing Chanel Bragg. Hello, everyone. Person. Good to see you, Sean. It's been a couple of days. Since you've seen me, I know, we, we, we talk several times a day, and every now and then a whole day goes by. Right. The excitement <laughs> of regional theater. Um, we have a, a guest today that I am really thrilled for us to be able to talk about and to be able to do it, because it really feeds into our main stage season. So let's go ahead and bring out Christina Hamm at this moment to be able to join us. Hi, hello there. Hello, hello. It's so lovely to be here with both of you. Thank you. Oh, it's it's so great to have you. We so appreciate you making the time for this. Um, so I want to dive into you and your career, and you have, and we know so many people, and we're gonna do a whole Jeremy <laughs> Cohen love session later, be able to do it. But you know, we are. I want to start with just the big one in the room, right? So we are producing Nina Simone for women. Yes. in our upcoming season. We've announced it like 11 times um, <laughs> as we announce it and then we move our season, but it's one of the ones that we are dedicated to. And you are the author, you are the playwright, you are the the whole reason that exists. So I just love to hear a little bit, you know, about why you put it together, what the process was, and just for our audience to know a bit more about it. Yes, so I was approached about doing a commission um, of Nina Simone by an actress, uh, Virginia Marie Williams, that I collaborate with quite a bit um, when I lived in Minneapolis. And she wanted to do, she had done a cabaret show of Nina Simone, but she wanted to do something that was more like a play. And she knew that I was a playwright and she wasn't. And so we met with the artistic director of Park Square and I talked about what would be appealing to me about that idea um, and that it couldn't be a jukebox musical because I personally am not interested in that, but I really wanted to dig more into what made her shift from being an artist to becoming an artist and activist. And that was the bombing of the 16th Street Baptist Church and the murder of the four little girls. And it turned out that my mom's family, who's from Birmingham, went to that church. Oh. So it was very personal for me to look at what is the, what is the duty of an artist when uh, the world around them is falling apart? What part do you play in responding to that artistically? And so that was really the impetus for the kind of play with music. And Sean, you can explain to the audience the kind of difference because most people are like, isn't it a musical? And it's like, no, it's a play with music. And I think um, the most successful productions of the play have been when people realize it's a play with musical and not a musical. Well, I think, one of the things I love about what you did is that you are really trying to tell the story of Nina Simone and do it in a way that would accurately reflect, right, the type of music that she was doing. Because I'm sure there's a cotton candy version of it to be able to do it, but that's not that's not who she was. And if you listen to her lyrics, that's not she was what she was writing about. Right, absolutely. And so the music, the music or the play looks at the story through the lens of her song uh, for women and I use the four women um, within that song to to integrate them into the uh, play 
Um, and I found it to be very, after all the productions, it really works because when I talk to specifically Black women after this show, they really feel like they're represented in one of those women. Um, so that that makes me feel like I, I did a good job. When I when I read it, I thought it was really interesting that for the character profiles, it's very specific about what you want each character to even look like. Can you elaborate a little bit more on that? Because I just found that so fascinating. Well, that that I took my cue directly from Nina when she wrote um, that song because she was directly tackling colorism within that song which is um, something that I feel like the white community isn't familiar with, but it's something that we, we definitely deal with in, in our community. And, um, you know, the issues that a darker skinned black woman faces versus someone who's tan or lighter skinned are, are definitely very different. And so, um, I wanted to reflect that within the play and, and honor that as well. And I think also like it really, every cast that has performed this show, it's really, I feel like brought the women together in a way than when they first started the rehearsal process um, because the play does unearth so many of those issues that Nina herself or, was tackling, especially as a darker skinned Black woman who at times grappled with her love-hate relationship with herself because of how the world saw her. Definitely. Thank you for that. And I also love that this will air during the week of her birthday, which is yes. exciting. <laughs> it is. <laughs> So, you know, one of the things that we're we're working to educate our audience on is just like, who, who are playwrights? Where does this come from? <laughs> you know, like, you know, this show has been a big hit. Lots of places are doing it. Can you just walk us through a little the process of like, how does something go from a friend coming to you and saying like, I'd love to do something to the multiple productions of it that happen around the country? Um. It, it was, I would say that this, because I've been writing plays now for 25 years, and this was definitely the hardest play to write. Um, and I think there's a few reasons for it. I think, first of all, it's like I had my idea of what it was going to be, which is like now I can clearly iterate, oh, this is what I came up with, and this was the idea. But I, there were a few different other iterations of the play before I landed on this version that makes, that seemed like that was what the play wants to be now. Um, and I definitely know that it is at this point, but I had written, I think three different drafts of the play that were very different. And I can't even remember what they were now but it felt more manufactured and not really what I just described a few minutes ago. Mm -hmm. And I remember the deadline was looming and I was just in bed with the covers over my head. Like, ah, oh, I have to come up with something. This is so frustrating. I've never, I, I've never had to deal with writer's block. Um, and so I don't know what happened. There was something that triggered me like sitting down. And then I, I, I think I actually just started to think about the reason she became this, this artist activist was because of the bombing. I know what that is because my mom's family lived that. So why don't I go personal instead of trying to create this, this thing that I don't know about? And then going from the personal to her personally, like why she ended up there as well and why this was such a catalyst in her life, then it was easier to write because I wasn't writing from this abstract place. Oh, I think that's amazing. So, so then like what happens? You do a world premiere production. And <laughs> Oh yeah, yeah, and it was a sold out run at the in Park Square Theater for your audiences in St. Paul, Minnesota. 
Um, and it was just, it did gangbusters for them. And then they brought it back that next year as well. And it still did well. But then more people were starting to hear about it. And that's when the production started to come because it it kind of fits this nice sweet spot where it's not as expensive as a musical. And, you know, you only have those kind of four or five actresses and a musical director. And so it makes it easier uh, to produce than you know, if you have to have dancing people <laughs> and like a full orchestra and all those things, you just need a piano. Um, and so. how and how many productions do you know it's had up until this point? Oh my gosh, I would have I would have counted if you told me. <laughs> I just know I just know at this point it's been done all over the world, like nationally and internationally. At this point. Um, I feel like I would leave some people out <laughs> if I had to like really figure out how many like places it's 10, been. 50, 100, <laughs> what would you guess? At least 10. Yeah. 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 It's been, it was just done in Vienna, I think last fall. And it's been done in South Africa and Bermuda. And yeah. So it's, it's been making them round since I wrote it. And I'm a, oh, sorry. I was just gonna say, did you go to any of those? Like, what was it like to see? Mm. No, I couldn't go because of work. I wish I I had, because I would love to go to uh, any of those places. Um, but as many times as it's done here, I really do try to go as much as I can unless work, you know, gets in the way of that. Because I, I just love seeing the women be empowered. I feel like the play empowers women in a way that I rarely see on stage or screen. And so I, I just love seeing as many productions of it as I can. Like when it was done in St. Paul, I usually go every night. Mm. Well, I'm a huge fan of Nina Simone. I'm a vinyl collector, so I have many of nice. her records. Um, so I was especially excited when I found out that we were doing this show. Um, but we also know that out there there have been other um, screenplays of Nina that have not been as well received. She's such a cultural icon and an activist, and her blackness is the center of a lot of her um of the things of that she's like putting out there that is important. And so when some of the movies that have come out that have been about Nina Simone, they haven't exactly captured that and have drawn a lot of criticism. So with your play, how were you like working toward like honoring the very spirit of who she is? Uh, you know, because that's a that's big shoes to fill to portray a woman like that. Well, I think I, I didn't it's weird because I didn't see the movies. Like I know the film that you're talking about, I didn't end up seeing that. But um, I think for me, what was important was really just staying authentic to who she was. And I wasn't really trying to do a bio play. So for me, the focus was very, very narrow and that enabled me to really focus on kind of reflecting what it is to be an artist who's trying to capture a tumultuous period that we're in, which, I mean, hello, we're living, we're living in now. And so for me, that didn't really take a big leap because I'm an artist as well. But more importantly, it was to really look at that moment when the bombing of the church happened and how that ignited her to take a stand in a way that she never had in her career before. And so the play's really hyper-focused on that. And it's really locked into that moment of the bombing of the church. And also the, the kind of switch from the artist to the activist. And then also the extra layer of her writing for women and the issues of colorism and also the music 
in her repertoire that isn't like the popular stuff. It doesn't include like all the hits. It's it's those protest songs that she was that she ended up writing after the bombing that's mainly included in the play. So those were a lot of ways that I wanted to honor her her memory in terms of um, looking to keep the play as focused as possible on that moment. If I started dealing with her husband and all these other elements, then it wouldn't have been, I don't think, as successful. You know, I got to give a a shout out to uh, BJ Jones, who runs North Light (laughs) Theater. Yes. um, Who called me. Um, I think, you know, like three years ago and was like, I have the hottest show playing in my theater right now. You have to do this. Um, And uh, it was your play. You know, it was this. And I I guess it just packed the houses in like and also like Skokie, Illinois is not often known as a cultural and diverse center <laughs> no. of what it is. But when your play was there, BJ Jones was like, I, you know, I, I can't, it's, it's sold out every night. People are coming, people who have never come to the theater before. Like you, you have to do this play. And it's, it's so rare that you get a call from another artistic director being like, I don't even care. I don't even want any money. I just want you to know, like you, like, be be experiencing what I'm experiencing, which is how I came in contact with it. I wish I had gone to see that production because I have never been to Northlight. And I know my husband my husband who's also in theater and he used to be a literary manager, like he knows BJ. And I had found out from my agent that they wanted to do it, and I was like, okay, I guess it's in, I know it's in Skokie. It's not in Chicago though, I I guess, sure. It was one of the biggest royalty checks I've gotten. <laughs> since, since I, I mean, and then I talked to, and you know, Haley Finn, Sean. Yep. I talked to Haley because she had directed there um, on a show that was going to, Broadway later on I think it was the Charlie Brown show mm-hmm. and she's like oh yeah their theater's huge like she, she was like they have a huge theater I was like the show must have done gangbusters and he was BJ was texting me how well it was doing and yeah so I'm I'm really glad that it found and and I feel like ideally if when theater comes back like I feel like there'll hopefully be a lot more shows like that that'll bring audiences back um where they see themselves reflected in some way on the stage and within our communities yeah so so I programmed the show at Merrimack Rep yes based off of BJ Jones but then I left before it happened and I got here and programmed it again (laughs) Um, but they they had the same experience there at MRT where it's just like it brings people out of the woodwork Um, it's amazing I know I have a friend from Lowell who who mentioned the same thing she like sent me like one of the brochures from the production so (laughs) yeah well, and I think the thing that I always hear from people at these theaters is that it feels, you know, it feels like the play is written in the style and voice of her, right? So if mm-hmm. you are a fan of Nina Simone, it's not like it's not like the the womb to tomb story that we often get <laughs> in a jukebox musical to be able to follow, right? It, it's like, Can I use that show? I know, I've never nice. heard that before. Oh my God, I feel like that's what every story is where they're like, and then they did this, then they did this, and they died. Um, but that it really is like, if you are a fan of her work, this is what her work felt like. And I think especially, you know, we have older audiences that remember that time very specifically mm-hmm. to it. And we have... You know, even, you know, a lot of our conversations are with subscribers and donors and even my mother-in-law about like what what is different or not different from that moment to right now in terms of work. Mm-hmm. And so I think the compliment I always get about your work is that it is not just a reason to get to the songs, but it's like, if you love who she was, this is a, this is a great encapsulation of that feeling of what it was. I, I agree. 
Thank you. I, I really tried really hard to capture that. And so I think some of the warm and fuzzies that people get from jukebox musicals, you're not, I mean, there's definitely those moments, a lot of them in, in the play, but it's also really uncomfortable. And that's how Nina was though. She was uncomfortably honest. Um, and unapologetically Black. And I think that all of that is encapsulated in the, in the play in a, in a different way than a lot of musicals that people might experience. Yeah. What uh, song do you like the yeah. most in it? Because I, for me, I was surprised His Eyes on the Sparrow was in it. And so is there any particular number that, um, why were you drawn to the numbers that you chose? And is there a particular number that resonates with you? Um, yeah, so some of the, like, Center Man is, is a gospel song as well, and, and Eyes on the Sparrow, and those were songs that were close to her personally, because she grew up in the church, and her mom was a minister, and she played piano in the church, and so it was important to kind of show, like, those roots that she had in the church, and also hints at the complicated relationship she had with her mother because her mother was a minister, but because she was playing quote unquote devil music <laughs> um, at the same time. Um, so for me, like Sinner Man is obviously like a, a big one for me. And um, we've had music arrangers who've really taken that moment with the cast to kind of do some of the stuff that's done in the live version of the song with like their hands and feet and that sort of thing that gets back to the more primal roots of like black music, which has been great. And I love the song Brown Baby. And that was one that I added to the show later on because, um, she claimed that that was one of her first kind of protest songs that she used to sing. And when I learned about that, I thought it was very, very important, um, especially knowing that she made this transition because of the bombing of the 16th Street Baptist Church and the murder of the four little girls. Brown Baby was um, a pretty significant addition and for women as well, even the, obviously the show is subtitled because of that. But I think in one of the interviews I read with her in their early seventies, she talked about imagining um, the four little girls being grown up mm. and that for women was kind of inspired by that as well in some ways. And so when, and, that was after I'd started writing it. And so when I learned that, I was like, oh, wow, I'm really going in the, the right direction then, having read that later. Oh, so. I can't, I can't wait. We gotta, we gotta, you know, we'll, we'll stop <laughs> announcing it and just get to it. I know, right? <laughs> be able to do it. So I, I would also, you know, I would love just to talk a little bit about you, not just about the show to be oh, of course. to do it, you know, because I, I also want my audience to be excited about the the playwrights that we're supporting and going forward. So I I met you, you were living in Minneapolis. Um why were you living in Minneapolis? Can you give us can you give us the reason why why Jeremy Cohen like sweet talks a generation of playwrights to come be in the cold? Well, and and this was before it was a few years before Jeremy got there. So I got there in two thousand five, and Carl uh, was there at the time um, yeah. as the artistic director. And I thought I'd only be there a year. My mom is like, "Why are you moving to Minneapolis? We have no people there." And <laughs> I was just like, "I'm only going to be there a year, and then I'm going to come back." And like I told you, Sean, before we started the show, it was 13 years. So <laughs> yeah, and so for people that don't know, there there are foundations 
in there that will support local artists with some of the largest individual grants that are given to artists, right? For them to be able to use for whatever, living expenses, rent, whatever, like, so, but you have to be a resident to get them. So a lot of playwrights apply and then if they get them, they move there, right? To be able to accept it. Absolutely. And so at the time the fellowship was only $7,000, which is hard to believe. So I tempt part-time at Target, which uh, in Minneapolis, their headquarters are there. So I was in the ad department and I just wrote, like it was the first time in my life where I was being paid to write. Mm. And I understood that you know, it's not very expensive to live here. And the salary that I used to have in my day job life, I actually don't really need that. And I wasn't married. I didn't have kids. I didn't even have a pet. So it was <laughs> <laughs> the cost of living was pretty cheap. Um, and so it allowed me to build this whole new body of work over my over the years there and establish a lot of great friendships. There's I guess the saying in Minneapolis is they have more theaters per capita than New York City. Um, During my time there, I got uh, over a half a million dollars in funding for my art, for my art. And I also taught there as well. I taught playwriting, screenwriting, intro to black theater history. And I still follow a lot of my students, see what they're up to, see how they're growing up and becoming the next generation of artists. And it's just a really great community as, as you, you know, Sean, um, and really great people who have become lifelong friends. Yeah, I mean, there there are so many fantastic playwrights like you that have this story that they went there for a year Right. Yeah. <laughs> and years later, they're, you know. Yeah. And a lot of a lot of them are still there, you know. Um, and so those are things that I miss, you know, obviously with COVID, like I gone back there in 2019 for a week to see friends. And I plan to go back with my husband in 2020 to see more of our friends. And, you know, obviously we'll we'll get back there. But um yeah, I really do miss it. So you're you're there, you're a playwright, you're doing great. What what brought you back out to LA? Where you're from, correct? Yes. So I was born and raised in LA. So I went to USC, UCLA, a Trojan and a Bruin. Um, oh, how, does that, how does that work? That's yeah. Well, I went to UCLA for free. So that's how that worked. I got a grant. Um, but I, brought, I came back out here in 2018 because I got hired on a TV show and um, I had a manager at the time who had submitted this uh, ghost play that I had done at the time with my theater company in Minneapolis, the Workhouse Collective. And um, the company that read the play, the Greg Berlanti's company, they do a lot of I think he has the most shows on TV right now or something like that. Um, The showrunner, Roberto Aguero Sacasa, who's also a playwright, um, he was going to start a new show called The Chilling Adventures of Sabrina based on the graphic novel he had done. Mm -hmm. And so I had an interview with him on a weekend that I had flown out here to actually do a faculty orientation at USC because my former professor had asked me to teach the playwriting classes that got me interested in the playwriting. And I interviewed with him on Sunday and then by Wednesday I was starting in his room. Oh my God. Yeah, and so that's how I switched over from just being a teacher and a playwright and working at the Playwright Center part-time, mentoring emerging artists of color to now in this whole different field. Um, I was fortunate because I grew up here. I still owned my parents' house. So 
it made it easier than some friends that we have who have to scramble to find an apartment and all that stuff. Like I didn't need to do that. I just had to ship my car out here. <laughs> That's crazy. Roberto is an old friend of mine. Oh, do, do you know him from? I know him from dad's garage where, where he got us slapped That's with a million right. dollar lawsuit. Yeah. <laughs> Wait, are you serious from the comic book play? From the comic book play, right. So the fun the fun story with Roberto is he wrote <laughs> this play about Archie Andrews, right? The whole yeah. game. Um, and it's like years later and Archie is gay and yeah. doing these things. And Archie Comics like got word of it and shut us down and sent this like, and they faxed it to us. This shows you how old it was. This like multi-million dollar lawsuit if we were to go forward in terms of wow. what it was. But the amazing story of Roberto is that he is now, he went from being sued by Archie Comics. He is now the CEO of Archie Comics. He has yes. worked his way all the way up <laughs> to be able to do it. Yes. <laughs> yes. And I guess he told that story at his interview about how like how much he had loved Archie and he really just wanted to take it forward. And of course now like Riverdale exists, right? Which is exactly like, which is like the next version of that to be able to do. Exactly. Uh, but you've it's, really never been through it with a playwright until you have like all the lawyers on your board sitting down to figure out like what next steps are. You know, in lawsuit. I did not. Maybe I knew that. I'm not sure. Yeah, I don't know. Um, so he's a he's a he's a good friend, and I love that he's had like such success with you know with it going forward. Yeah, yeah. We um, it was really a great time working on the show. I got to cover set and learn what that meant to do that and his room was fantastic and I just had a great time on the show I was on it for the first two seasons gotcha um and what and what show are you working on now um so right now I'm on Westworld that's on HBO um and I'm writing my episode after I get off that's <laughs> <laughs> so um, so I'm working on that right now, which is really, really a lot of fun. And um, it's really a big show. And so it's exciting to be able to work on it with such great people as well. I feel kind of fortunate because all the shows I've worked on, I've been in really great rooms that haven't really been problematic. I know other friends of ours who haven't been as fortunate, but I feel really quite lucky. So, so let me ask you this, and I don't know if it's a controversial question. We did an event the other night with Christopher Diaz um, oh, to, yeah. talk, to talk about, you know, like, and this was with our with our closest donors to talk about, like, how can theater, you know, better support donors? And he really felt like we're losing a generation of playwrights to TV, right? Because theater doesn't provide them. I mean, he made the good thing of like, you can't get health insurance, right? Right through the Dramatist Union. So you yeah. have to do something else, but just even, you know, even if you get a $16,000 royalty check from a theater, which sounds like a lot, that's four, it took you four years of work to be able to get yeah. that 16,000. So we're, we're he feels like we're losing a generation to TV because they have no choice but to be able to do it. Do you feel like that's the same way? Do you feel like you're you're getting support from from theater or I mean you had this amazing career and now you're out you're in LA having another amazing career? Um I feel the same way in a lot of ways but I also feel very fortunate um cuz my work is still like I'll just say this so you know like as a staff writer um one of the uh, one of the big things that's appealing, like, you know, if you're a new playwright and your play gets picked up somewhere, you know, you can be lucky if you make upwards of $10,000 on the production, like that's kind of being optimistic. Yeah. Um, but as a staff writer on a show, you're making over a hundred grand out the gate. Mm -hmm. 
and then you've already qualified for your health insurance. And I can't imagine, like, I still, uh, we don't have kids. I decided not to have kids, but if you have a family, that, that means a lot. And so I think it is hard to continue in the field where you're not getting that kind of robust support. Um, but I can say that the year I started and Sabrina, I made an equal amount of royalties off of the productions of Nina. And also, you know, I, I do TYA work as well. Um, and so my play on Ruby Bridges and also for little girls have also been um, money makers in the publishing um, canon, which is why I try to encourage playwrights to do TYA work as well, because um, it's an opportunity where they constantly need new plays and it can be a source of income in a way that sometimes adult plays aren't if you don't have like a Nina or some other money maker. No, our playwright in residence has a festival coming up and one of her titles she literally wrote so she could have Christmas money to go home and see her folks. And so literally yeah. something that she was like, it was my first attempt at TYA and I just needed to make enough money to go home and see my family. And it's one of her most produced plays that she's ever It is. I, I don't think playwrights understand that because I know TYA work sometimes get gets ghettoized, but it, it really is an effective way to continue to make money. No, and I, I so appreciate you being honest about what the numbers are to be able to share, because I think for so many of our donors and supporters, they don't realize that even at the level that we're working at, right, which feels like we're the biggest theater in the state and we're, you know, we're in the conversations like we're not supporting artists at the level we need to for them to be anything other than a, a single person living in an apartment without a cat. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. I, 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 you know, there are lots of great players like that, but like, you know, like I have a daughter and I, yeah. would, I would not want to in any other way stop anyone from doing that. So how do we support artists who want to have a family, who want to take a vacation, who want to be able to do it? And it's like, we're, we're not supporting them currently at a level for them to be able to do it. And I think not everybody understands that until you kind of break the numbers down for them, right? And then to be able to do it. But that does take, to your point, of having some of those uncomfortable conversations. Yeah, and I think, you know, we know kind of the numbers. Like, uh, I always point out to people that I'm not like the baseline of what a playwright is. I'm kind of the exception to the rule. Like most times, most plays that we discovered at the Playwright Center, it takes on average seven years just for them to be produced from the time the writer writes them. But then there's so many plays that playwrights just have in there on their drive that aren't bothering anybody, you know, <laughs> and you've most of the time you've written those for free. Um, and so I feel like I'm I'm not really the greatest example because I've been able to carve out a living doing it in some way. Um, but there's so many who haven't been doing that at all. You know, my friend got an earnings statement from one of the big publishers of one of her plays that was done at the public and it was zero dollars. <laughs> like no other place had, had produced it. And so, and it was a hit play, but, you know, so it, it's just, it's a, I think it's a, a longer conversation, Sean, but I, I definitely agree with Chris that, you know, we have to, the work that I choose to do in theater now is a recommitment to doing it because it's where I started, but I'm not like looking to, I'm not expecting to make, you know, big bucks except for when you guys do my show that's right that's right that's right, yes. that's right. when we do it or when bj jones apparently does the next job because he's got the magic touch up there yeah 
No, your body of work is so, so diverse. Um, I just wanted to ask you, like, what is the difference of writing for Sabrina versus writing for Westworld? I'm a fan of Westworld. I, I saw the advertisement for Sabrina, and now, of course, I'm going to go watch it. Um, but, yeah, what's the difference for you between writing between those two different shows? Um, I think... I think the difference is obviously the world of the shows is very different. Like also the style of the shows and how the, uh, what we call the showrunners, the people who run these shows like Roberto and um, Jonah Nolan and Lisa Joy who do Westworld. Um, Just kind of the style of how they do the shows is, is very different. Um, and I think also Westworld deals with a lot of philosophical, like, heady ideas in a way that Sabrina dealt with the supernatural and, and kind of more grounded horror in Westworld's more sci-fi, which all that encapsulates in a way, um, but also grounded sci-fi in some ways. So they're just very, it's very different, but they're both really fun to do. Yeah. Oh, fantastic. All right. We ask every guest that comes on our show to bring a word that they feel like that they they have right now or, you know, just like where they're at emotionally, what they're thinking about so that we can title the episode. But also it ends up leading to some fantastic conversations. So do you have a word that you want to share with our audience? I do. Boundaries. Oh, no one has ever, nobody <laughs> no one has said, said that, that word year. Nobody has ever said that. My boundaries. Um, I think it's, I think it's important. I think like some of my greatest joy this year, since we are now sitting here because we all have been survivors basically, um, is that starting off a new year in a new way, entails like now a level of focus of people feeling somewhat rejuvenated to start again. And I think in order to do that, for me, it's been important to have boundaries and to be okay with that. Um, And it allows me to focus. It allows me to rest when I need to and not feel guilty about it. Um, And I think that that's important in a world where we feel like we have to power through all the time. Yeah, I so, you know, I agree with you. And then somewhere deep in my DNA is built the like theater work ethic, which sort of says like, if you don't take this opportunity, you will never work again. Even though you've been doing it for decades, even though that's technically, you know, not true. It's somewhere I feel like taught to us deep inside and I and I have to like what I would tell you intellectually and how I act are often different things because I don't always I'm not always good at those boundaries because you just kind of think like you you should you, so we're taught you should be grateful and this may be the last opportunity you get absolutely because theater is very much built on a scarcity model it is. right and the show must go on complex <laughs> yeah I, I knew a girl no joke in college that stepped on a fork and had to tap dance in the show that night. And we tried to come up with an alternative and she was like, no, I have to do it. It's <laughs> like, what is that? We figure out an alternative. But no, she, she went on and tap dance with the fork in her foot. So, you know. Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. That's so terrifying. <laughs> yeah. No, I love that word. And it's such a good reminder for us going forward, right? Especially now when it's like, what are weekends? What are weekdays? What are, we could very easily, right? Yeah. Yeah. I, I just, I think it's important. Yeah. Oh, that's great. It's really wonderful. Well, Christina, thank you so much for thank coming you. on the show. Thank you for your gorgeous work. We cannot wait to produce it. We cannot, you know, oh, you're in I'm LA. So so excited. Short drive. You can come visit us when we do Please. it. I would love to do that. I, I can't wait. <laughs> I can't wait to leave the house. Yeah. <laughs> well, we can't wait to have you here. <laughs> Well, thank you so much for having me. This was wonderful. Oh, you are a fantastic guest. Thank you so much for being here. <laughs> thank you. Oh, thank you. Take care. You Bye. too. Bye. 
how wonderful. I'm so excited about this offering that's coming up. So uh, now, and I'm going to go run to Netflix this weekend and probably binge watch Sabrina. But I don't do scary often, so we'll see how that goes. That'd be great. Oh, no. And I just think it's great for our audience to know, like, this is the exciting work that we're bringing when we return, right? Absolutely. Um, so thank you so much for tuning in to this week's Hang In Focus and stay tuned for the call board. Great. Thank you, everybody. This is your call board for February 26th through March 4th, 2021. I'm Will Rogers, Community Engagement Manager for Arizona Theater Company. And thanks for joining us today. If you call today's show, Sean and Chanel caught up with Christina Ham, who is the playwright of Nina Simone for Women, which will be appearing in our next season. We're super excited about that. She's also a writer for Westworld. She's a writer for uh, The Chilling Adventures of Sabrina. So awesome interview. If you didn't catch it already, catch it now because it is available on Facebook. It is available on YouTube and it is available on our website. So there's no excuse not to see it. Once, once it goes live, it is there forever. So watch it, like it, subscribe to our feed, ring our bell, you know the routine. And please join us again next Friday at four o'clock when we will have another exciting guest. We are gearing up for Romero Fest. So there are some amazing shows coming your way and you can get information on that and so much more on our website. It's a jam packed festival and you're not gonna wanna miss a moment of it. In fact, it is kicking off so soon on March 1st. Don't miss the opening panel event with scholars discussing the importance and impact of Elaine Romero's work. Panelists will include Dr. Ann Garcia Romero, Dr. David Crespi, and Dr. Jimmy Noriega. The panel will be moderated by Tanya Palmer, who's also joining us as dramaturg for our reading of Elaine Romero's newest play, Halstead. So lots of exciting things happening around Romero Fest. You can get information on all of it at arizonatheater.org. So it's gonna be great, right? You're gonna love it. We're gonna love doing it for you. Don't miss it because it's gonna kick off an entire month of workshops and readings and all kinds of amazing events, all celebrating ATC's playwright in residence, the incomparable Elaine Romero. So please, please, please join us for that. You can get all the information on our website, uh, arizonatheater.org. No, don't ever forget. Everything you could ever wanna know is on that website. Well, everything you could ever want to know about Arizona Theater Company. Now, there's also some great stuff on that website just, just this week that went up for the education department. If any of these things sound exciting to you, Small Project Friday, collaborations with Pima Community College and Maricopa Community Colleges, master classes for teens and improv classes. Well, that means that you should be an ATC team. That's what that means if you're interested in any of those things. So please check out our website. Jasmine Roth is just doing amazing stuff over there in the Department of Learning and Education. So come and check it out and play with us. All right, it's time for another Ghostlight Beat. I would normally say, here's what's happening in theaters around Arizona, but we've been giving a lot of love to Phoenix. So today is all about Tucson because you know what, Tucson, we love you. You still have one more day to catch Frozen Fluid by the Scoundrel and Scamp Theater. It is amazing. You guys really should check this out. It's one more day uh, and it's all online. So please go over to scoundrelandscamp.org. Check that out. And Winding Road Theater Ensemble, who has been doing amazing work online since the pandemic started, uh, continues. The time is out of joint, a Shakespeare project. And that is adapted and directed by Molly Lyons. And it runs through March 14th. That is a streaming event, and you can get all the information at Winding Road Theater. And both of those theaters are our partners for Romero Fest. So it all comes full circle. But there's also something else exciting happening in Tucson this week. The Rogue Theater's The Weir by Connor McPherson, directed by Christopher Johnson. You can see from the photograph right here, our very own Carly Elizabeth Preston is in it. She does amazing work as part of the ensemble there, and everyone needs to go and check it out. All right, it's time for our very last Black History Spotlight. This year, ATC has decided to shut, uh, turn our proverbial spotlight on people, producers, actors, community organizers, folks making theater history in Arizona today, making history today. And we are excited to bring you this um, awesome person who has a very special tie to ATC as they were a member of our staff for a very long time but now they are soaring in their own endeavor and the spotlight for this week is Ashley LaRusa of Rue Events. 
Rue Events is an event management company founded in Tucson with a primary, you know what? Let's let Ashley tell you herself. She says it so beautifully. My business name is Rue Events, um, and Rue stands for the base and Creole dishes, a foundation of mixtures of butter and flour and fat, um, and then you add in your seafood. And so I wanted to apply that to the business model, being a foundation and a collaboration here in our community. And she does it all with the guiding principles of love, transparency, collaboration, and preservation. Isn't that beautiful? Ashley is also part of the team behind Hashtag Blacks Friday, created by a group of Black business owners and creatives who started organizing a platform to shine a spotlight on local Black businesses. It's an amazing website, and if you have any shopping to do or just want to spend some time undergoing some retail therapy, I highly suggest you head over there. In fact, I did a little snooping around on the website last night and found myself at Blackberry Gifts and Goods and got this amazing tote bag. I love it so much. So, so please head on over to BlacksFriday.com, check it out, support some Black-owned businesses in Tucson, and in short order, they'll be coming to wherever you are because Ashley LaRussa is taking over the world. We'd also like to take a moment to remember and honor Slivy Edmonds. As a longtime ATC trustee and honorary trustee, Slivy served as board chair in the mid-1990s and provided strong leadership with energy and grace. She was especially fond of August Wilson plays, and she got to know Wilson so well that she became a founding board member of the African Grove Institute for the Arts, where she served as a chairman. Slivy Edmonds, thank you for your generosity and passion. You have made a mark on Arizona Theater Company. Normally, I would sign off with a quip, but today we're going to do things a little differently. It's the end of Black History Month. It's the end of our Spotlight series, and I think Ashley LaRusso can take us home. These are Ashley's thoughts on where we are in this moment in the wake of all that's happened since the pandemic began. I think it's a true moment of transparency. If you are following values and missions of open door policies and talking up front about uh, courageous conversations, I think it's a true time for organizations to make a stand and to say, we stand up against injustices and we stand with our fellow brothers and sisters and non-binary to move forward positively because that's, that's our only way, you know? And there are gonna be individuals that don't wanna see progress or, or they, they're not concerned with the positive. And there's always gonna be those individuals. We have to learn how to navigate around and collect the other positive-minded people that are moving forward and want us all to succeed. But before any of that can happen, acknowledgement. We must acknowledge all of our transgressions. <laughs>